Well, good morning. I made a few promises to myself. Uh, so obviously, being on sabbatical for, for a while, I, the, the question comes, with, how do you know when it's time to get back? And it's when you see everything around you as a sermon illustration. And I was like, okay, maybe it's time to jump back in the pulpit. Uh, but the reality is, is that there was just a lot of things that God had done. And I promised myself that I wouldn't just vomit all of the sermon illustrations on you that I learned over the past month. Uh, so it's not going to be just a time of me telling you stories about what happened. But I would like to start off with one. And so uh, many of you know that there was a, a few of us that decided to take a, a backpacking trip in, outside of Aspen, Colorado. And so, you know, I mean, you do the best you can in Texas to train for elevation. <laughs> and it doesn't work. It, just, it didn't work for me. Uh, you know, you start at 9,500 feet, you're going up to 12,500 feet, and man, it was, it was just killer. But in preparation for the trip, you know, you want to make sure that you have everything you need and, and try and go as minimal as you can because you know that you have to carry everything in your pack. And so, you know, you're hoping 30, 35 pounds uh, in the process. But I was sitting with, with two men in this church before the trip started, and I was telling them that I was trying to save a couple of bucks. And the way that I was doing that is I had this old pair of hiking shoes. And in the process of the old pair of hiking shoes, the soles started to, to, to fall off. Um, and both of the advice of these men were, uh, buy some new shoes. <laughs> and I was like, thanks guys, but I, I got this. And so what did I buy? There's this stuff called shoe goo. And it's like glue. And so literally, like I, 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 I poured and I taped it all together. And I, I, I got all the soles all set and, and healed. And there was glue coming out the sides. And I was like... Look, I'm going to show them that I'm saving money and I'm all set and things are going great. So we start the hike and after the first river crossing, we sat down for a break. And guess what? <laughs> the souls had separated, right? And so one of the advice of my friends said, well, just, just bring an extra pair of shoes just in case. No, not me. I had a pair of sandals and I had these shoes. Walking up and down these rocks at 12,500 feet. And one of the guys on the trip was like, well, I got some paracord. So I'm tying these things together and thinking about all this stuff. And then I'm like, I'm just going to wear my sandals. And like literally foolishness, foolishness. I had guys who, who hike and know how to hike. And I've hiked before and saying, that's just not a good idea. And leave it to me, which is typically the course of my own life. I had to learn the hard way and realize that I should have listened to them from the very beginning. I mean, literally, what's a, a couple hundred bucks to get new shoes rather than walking around and tripping on the soles that are falling off when you've been advised, hey, I don't think this is a wise idea. That's an entry point into this series. And, and what I mean by that is that the Bible lays out all of these things for us uh, about what it means to, to draw close and become more and more intimate in our walks with Christ. And there's encouragement along the way. I mean, the, the Bible is littered with truths about what it means to draw close and even how to draw close and gives us great counsel and amazing wisdom. And here's what we do. Often we do what I did. I got this. I'll, I'll come to Jesus when I have a need or it's too hard or life is too much and I've blown it, and things just become absolutely exhausting that I need to turn back to him. And he receives us grac graciously and continues to draw us to himself intimately. But what the Bible gives us is there's a level of thinking through different areas and things that we can be a part of that ensure our continued intimacy with Christ. 
We call those spiritual practices. And what we mean is that we, we are, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, have, Jesus Christ have a relationship with him. So this is not about doing things to earn the love of God, because we have received that as a free and generous gift. But there are things that God is doing in us that he is also doing through us that's part of that intimacy. And so what we're saying is there are elements of our lives that we, we put things in place and decisions and, and even habits, if you will, that we know that as those things are there, those are ways in which God is working to draw us close. Spiritual practices, habits. And yet our flesh tells us all the time, I got this. Even from the advice of scripture and the counsel of God's word and, and even advice and counsel of friends. Hey, these things are critical places where you can draw closer to God by being a part of the work that God is doing through you. And yet we're like I was in Colorado. I got this. And so what I want to do as we start off our series is Psalm 24 is going to be the, the drumbeat, if you will, of our entire series. All these next five weeks, we're going to be looking and walking through different aspects of what it means to draw closer to Christ. But Psalm 24 begins to set the parameters for what that looks like. And then we're going to move into understanding what that looks like in a very specific area each week. And so, if you will, let me read Psalm 24 over us. It's not up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. If not, you can look off with someone or, or pull it up on your phone. I'll give you a second to do that. Because Psalm 24 is what, one thing I'm going to ask you to do is in the course of the next five weeks, I'm asking you to consider reading this Psalm every day. Every day, just putting it in your life and thinking about the reality of what God is saying to us in the context of why we're prioritizing intimacy and relationship with him and why that's so critical. Let me read it and then make a couple observations before we move into the text this morning. It's a Psalm of David, and here's what it says in verse, uh, chapter 24, starting in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, who receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation to those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, o lift and be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory at, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And the Lord add the blessing to the reading of His Word. Here's a desire this morning as we look at this text that's setting the drumbeat for our series on spiritual practices, we get a, a flavor of the nature and characteristics of the God who's calling us into intimacy. So this, this psalm was written by David at a very instrumental moment in his life. What had happened is that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken away from the temple. That means that the actual virtual physical presence of God was removed from the house that it had built to where the presence of God would reside. 
And in the process of that, this was the psalm that was likely written when the Ark of the Covenant was returned back to the temple. And so there's this place, this celebration in the nation of Israel just thinking God's presence has moved back in to dwell with his people. What's our response? What's, what's the response of the Israelites at the time? Open the doors. The king of glory is coming home. Right? Open the doors because this is where he resides. And so we think about that in a, a New Testament mindset. And what we're saying to ourselves is the reality that, that God is, that the, the Lord is the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That, that he owns everything. And that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father through an intimate relationship with God. And so there's this sense in which everything that we possess, everything that we have, the breath we breathe, the life we live, it's not ours. It's been given to us as a gift by the God of the universe. And so there's this open-handedness that we take as we think about, Lord, all I want at the end of the day, as I look at your word and, and the truth that washes over me, is I just want more of you. That you're the sole source of my provision. My life itself is a gift. Every aspect of the life that I have is given to me by you. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. There is not a nook and cranny in this world where God does not rule and reign. It's the author of the universe itself. And because of that, he's also the author of my life. He's also the one that's in charge and calling the shots. So in the process of that, there's two things that happen. One, it competes against our own self-sufficiency, right? We want to be like I was in Colorado. I got this. I'm all set. I want to tell you one of the most monumental truths that the scriptures will continue to remind us of. You don't have it. You don't. Neither do I. Like God did not create you and create me so that somehow in some way we could manage the chaos and the challenges in our lives. He gave us the gift of intimacy and relationship with him so that the rhythm of our relationship with him would be about the reality of his glory and not ours. We are not trying to develop prominence or prestige or, or come before any other brother and sister in Christ or the world and say, hey, look, I got my act together and you don't. We as believers are saying we are absolutely dependent upon the strength of Christ himself through the power of the Holy Spirit because God is made known to the world by his strength and our weakness. So somehow the economy of the kingdom is that what we would promote is an awareness that we are weak and we are in desperate need of the Father's work through Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit to do things that cannot be done on our own. We can't manage life. We've received it as a gift. So that means it's not ours. That God gave his love to us so that he could communicate his love through us. It's not a one-sided deal. You're not saved and have faith in Christ just because you're saved. (laughs) God has work and things that he's doing in you. And so that that salvation that you and I have experienced is so that others would see and know the radical reality of God's outpouring of love to the world at large. You are a vessel for the work of the Holy Spirit 
to be proclaimed among the nations. And so what does that mean we do? Well, that means that there's a a priority shift that takes place in every aspect of our lives. Now, I know, like you and me, everything in life is competing for our attention. Everything. I got bills to pay. I got gas to put in my car. I got kids to get to school. I got a job to do. I got things that have to be done. And so I think about, in a very practical way, I'm going to do these things. And I think the priority shift in the context of what God is calling us to as we operate in the the thought process of spiritual practices is that the priority is that all of those things are subservient to our intimacy with Jesus. And we're only able to do those things in a way that honors God because we're focusing on Christ above and beyond all things. He's the centerpiece and the focal point of our lives. So if that's true... Psalm 24, if we take that to heart, the the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that everything belongs to God, including our lives and our time and our treasures and our hopes and our dreams and our future, everything is God's, then what we think about are ways in which we are drawn closer to Christ for him to exhibit his strength and power in the world. So this morning, what I'd like to do is jump into maybe one of the spiritual practices that we don't talk about tons. We're going to move to 1 John chapter 3. And what I'd like to discuss this morning is the reality that there's a spiritual practice that we're about, based on Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that I would term generosity. And I think most of the time when I I use the term generosity, everybody's thinking about, I'm going to talk about what's in your pocket. (laughs) I'm going to talk about your money. I'm going to talk about your checkbook. Uh, It is so much bigger than that in every area. And so what, what first John is going to do is, is move us to a place of considering the gift that we've been given and how transformative that is and what that looks like as we think about dispensing that gift to others. So first John chapter three, first John, there's some challenges going on as John's writing this book. There are people that are leaving the church, some of them in droves, causing some friction because of some heresy that started. And the heresy is, is that Jesus isn't truly the Jewish Messiah and that they don't really believe in Jesus as the one who saves people from their sin. And so John is showing up because what ends up happening as people leave the church and as people are deceived and distorted with regards to the truth, there's an element of pride and arrogance for those who stay that begins to surface. And, and here's how it sounds. If it, if it made its way out on CNN or Fox News, the headline would be, people leaving the church in droves. But look at how awesome those who are that stayed. And so what ends up happening is you end up finding yourself feeling like you're better and in less in need of the grace of Jesus because you're not like them. And, and what John is going to do is he's writing this to the, the church is, is communicate that, that the economy of the kingdom, the work that the Lord is doing, how do you paint it? What, what word would you give? How do you understand how to capture the significant work of God? He uses the term with utter frequency, love. There's a sense in which the love that you've been given and that you receive is also so that you would give that love to others. And there's a, there's a generosity and a, 
I would even use the term ambitious generosity. There's this fullness of, of living a life of faith where what we're saying is that if God owns everything, it's his anyway. So what I'm going to look at in the context of my world is every opportunity that God has brought into my life because of his sovereign care and providence, I'm going to live open-handedly because I know that he's doing a work. And out of the billions of people that exist in this world, there's some people that have come into my life by God's sovereign plan to live generously before as a testimony of the gospel. Now look at John chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 11 through 24. I'd like to read it fully for you this morning, and then just a couple of pieces that I really want to camp out on. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Okay, so he's already moving us all the way back, and, and your mind should go to the very same place, Genesis, right? This is day one. This is the start of all things. He wants us to draw our minds back to that reality. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was evil, the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out, passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and everyone who does, uh, and everyone, let me start again, everyone who hates, you can tell I've been gone for a while, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for others. But if anyone has the world's goods, so this is just temporal provision, the world's goods. Everyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this, we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases and do what pleases him. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments and abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So, so John begins to, to kind of pick up steam as he talks about the, the challenging transformative reality of a gift that we received, and that gift is the love of God. But he moves us back into the story of creation. He said, this is the, it's the plan from the very beginning, that we would understand the significance of what love is in relationship to God and relationship to others. But he uses a, a negative example to bring that home. He moves us back to Cain and Abel. Right? The, 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 those who were born at Adam and Eve and, and instantly, not instantly, but fairly quickly, there's family dynamics that exist where there's jealousy, strife, and anger towards one another. It doesn't take long for the perfect peace and love that God had provided for his people to be vandalized by hatred and murder. It didn't take long at all. 
right? That left to their own devices, us left to our own devices, we choose our own way and what seems befitting and best to us, even though God had created a universe in total and absolute perfection. He's saying in the context of those things, that very thing exists in every single one of our own human hearts. The, the, the people that John is speaking to have hatred for those who are walking away. <laughs> Angry at the distortion and the deception. Angry at the criticism and frustration. You can see the, the temporal, earthly ramifications of people making bad decisions and doing what they shouldn't do. And the challenge in this text is that the first response to those who have harmed us, criticized us, or caused a level of frustration is ambitious, generous love. Now, that's pretty impractical if you ask me. But it's not as impractical if you look at it through the lenses of the cross. The outpouring of the love of the God of the universe who innocently died on the cross on behalf of sin-sick sinners who did not deserve his grace. See, what, what he wants us to do is look at the implications of the depth of love in which we've experienced. Because that transforms how we see other people. If we are constantly reminded of how much we deeply need Jesus and how deeply he loves us, we begin to grow more aware of the impact that love has had on us and the same impact it can have on others. It's a, it's a level of generosity and open-handedness with all of our lives. And so for some of us, we're not going to struggle and we're going to try and be faithful with, with giving money to the church. But there will be some places of challenge where there'll be people that'll be difficult to love and we won't be so generous. Others might have a different challenge where loving people and opening their homes is the easiest thing in the world, but they're holding tightly to something else. And what John is communicating to us is there's a sense in which all of it is owned by God. And so we are merely stewards, and that includes life itself. I think about families. I think about my family. I think about the temptation of trying to do everything I possibly can to make sure my kids are happy. Sacrifices on a regular basis, making sure that they, they go to the events that they need to go to, missing other things and prioritizing, and just the wealth of time that's invested in making sure they have all they need and can do whatever they want. And then I think about the most eternally significant thing that I can do as a father is communicate to them about prioritizing and realizing the love of Christ in their life. That's why we're doing this family discipleship conference. It's absolutely essential for us to remember the absolute potency of what we need to do and how we can think about growing our affections and our children's affections towards Jesus. So the reality, I think, of what John gives us is that uh, we invest in what we desire most. So that's a great thing, right? If it's God. But I think the challenge comes in this text to ask ourselves, what really are we invested in? I mean, if, if you just took a schedule of your time that you're not asleep. So you wake up at whatever, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., you go to work, you do all of those things, and then you think about maybe trying to find some time to pray or to read or to do all these things as, as attachments. And what, what ends up happening is we end up just trying to compartmentalize life. And what God is saying is all of it is worship. You wake up, you go to work, you go to work as a child of God. You're a missionary first and foremost. God's gift is to give you that job to help provide for your family so that you can pay the bills and have a house and do what you need to do. But in the context of those things, it's all worship. So if God calls you or you encounter someone in the context of your life or you see someone in need, none of those things are accidents. 
They're you being positioned and me being positioned before a lost and dying world to exhibit the generous grace that we've received. Period. There's not an accidental relationship. There's not an accident. Your coworkers are there by the sovereign providence of God. The neighbor that lives next to you, the person you see on the street, the individual that you know is broken and suffering, often needs more than just you saying, I'll pray for you, which I hope you do. But God is asking us to open the gates of our house, open the gates of our heart and allow the king of glory in in such a way that everything that we own is leveraged so that we can communicate the generous gift we received from the Father. Whether it's hospitality, whether it's financial, whether it's time, whether it's relationships, whether it's sacrificing moments of things that we want to do because a need comes up in the context of our lives. We invest in what our hearts desire most. Matthew 9 says as much. Matthew 9, yeah? I think it's Matthew 6, actually. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. God is calling us to invest in eternity. So I think what he's saying is as long as you realize what you've been given, you instinctively give. If we're reminded on a regular basis how much we've been given by the Father, the grace that he's bestowed upon us, we instinctually want others to know with passion that reality. So let me, let me just uh, hammer on a, a couple of points as we kind of finish up here this morning. So John gives us this, this radical reality of what love looks like, and he walks us through, and, and he, he tells us even in verse 19, he says, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts because he knows everything. What does that sound like to you? It's a motive check, right? Like we, we can't deceive the God who knows everything. And so there's a place of moving us to the reality that God is, is checking or knows the motives of why we do what we do. So really, when we think of radical generosity, and even as the Bible determines or defines generosity, you know how it defines it? The Greek word? Without pretense. <laughs> you can't fake it till you make it. You just can't. Before the God of the universe who sees all things, what we do is we come with an authentic reality of the areas that we're challenged and seeking God to grow us in innumerable and transformative ways. That it's not just God's grace to us, but it's God's grace through us. And I love what he says is that it's, it's generosity is motivated by those around you. Like he tells us that there, there are people as the spirit abides in us, that what we see is there's a, a knowledge and an experience that out of all the billions of the people in the universe, there are a select individuals that God has placed along your path for the purpose of dispensing generosity. So, so we see a need, we feel a need. We, it was that, I think it was that old uh, iRobot, that was an iRobot. Wally, that was the movie. One of those, yeah, you can tell my, my plethora of movie selections. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that was the, the theme of the movie, right? You, you see a need, you, you fill a need. And what we're saying biblically is that God has positioned you in people's lives to share and show the generous love that you've received from him. We've got to be reminded about how generous God has been to us. 
And because of that, that allows us to be generous, ambitiously generous with others. I think finally, I'd like to just focus on one thing that I think is critical. And, and I'll, I'll leave us with this. And there's a quote that I want to share. But I think generosity is an intentional way to grow in others-focused gospel work. So here's what generosity does. As we think about love and the generous love that we received, as First John tells us, and how that love exhibits itself in relationship with other people, I think the reason why God calls us to generosity is because it forces us to remind ourselves that it's not about us. That there's an other-focused gospel work that he's called us to. That it's not just receiving his grace, but it's allowing that grace to work through us in the lives of others. There's a, there's a challenge in that because I think for, for my life and myself, I think about areas in which maybe control is, is how I operate. I, I like to make sure that things work and, and whether you uh, open your home or, or whether you, you give or you see the, the homeless person on the street. And here's my first thought, right? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, this is a sinful flash. What do you say to yourself? Give him money, he's just going to buy booze. I mean, we all say those things. And yet, what, what I think First John compels us to is not that we just throw, throw money at him, but we move towards relationship. It's a whole lot more costly, isn't it? Five bucks versus 15 minutes. We choose five bucks every time. But those guys that stand outside saying, I'm hungry and in need, there's a McDonald's right there. Let's have lunch. Let's just talk. I'd love to buy you lunch. You know, those types of radical generosities, we're inviting people in so we don't keep them at a safe distance, but we realize that God never, the cross never kept us at a safe distance. Our mess, our problems and challenges and struggles and sin that existed was the very reason Christ died on the cross and moved towards us. Generosity is an intentional way to grow in the gospel-focused work in other people's lives. I, I think for many of us, myself included, I'm challenged by how I need to be more open-handed. How is my life reflecting the generous grace that I've been given? And I can't answer that question for you, but I have to answer it for myself. There's a, a gentleman that I was reading when he was talking about generosity, and he had this really great quote that I just want to leave with you before I pray. And, and we're going to move into communion after this. And so communion is a great way, right, to be reminded of the substance of the generous love that Christ has for his people. But here's the quote. Ambitious generosity grows in the imaginations and pockets of those who are awed by the generosity of God. Let me read it again. Ambitious generosity grows in the imaginations and the pockets of those who are awed by the generosity, generosity of God. You see how those things mesh together? When we know how much we've been given, we can't help but realize that it's all God's anyway. And we just want to leverage our lives so that his glory is displayed amongst the entire world. And one of the ways that we do that is to look at the areas of our life where there's friction. And I don't know what it is, but I know that there's an undercurrent in our culture, specifically within the United States, where people are angry. There's just this hair trigger where people are frustrated and, and we demonize other positions and we, we get frustrated and angry. And, and, and First John would talk to us about those things. 
because he's compelling those who are still a part of the church, even though there are those leaving the church because they're distorted and they they believe a heresy and they believe what's wrong, that you can't just dismiss them as though they aren't valuable to God. And yet what we would choose to say is that there are people in this world that I don't have to love. And the Bible would say, no. That we do not choose anger and frustration. We choose relationship with Jesus and moving to those even who might be struggling or that we disagree with. Generous, all-out, ambitious love grows in the imaginations and pockets of those who are awed by the generosity of God. There's nothing you did to merit the love of God. Nothing. I brought nothing to the table. (laughs) Zero. All God's work which then can compel me to generously live a life of what it means to just radically love others because of how I've been loved by Christ. So where is God pushing against you? It's the question this morning. Are there areas that you're holding on to that you don't want to live generously before God because you want to control the outcome? I know that's true for me. So part of it is repenting and part of it is looking for those opportunities that God has already presented each and every one of us. Let's pray.